Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So um, I'll, I'll talk for a few minutes, and then um, I want to continue with what we were doing yesterday. Um, I'm going to start with a little quote from uh, Proust. He's a good place to start for our literary festival here. <laughs> We do not receive wisdom, we must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us, for our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. We do not receive wisdom, we must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us. For our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. So this first part about journeying through a wilderness. So in yoga, the first wilderness we journey through is the wilderness of what's known. And what's supposedly known is the body. And we just start to venture a little bit into the body as a kind of wilderness that is supposedly most us and most known. And then we discover that we can't actually pay attention. I ask if you can pay attention to the end of your exhale, or even just to an exhale. And maybe you get partway through the exhale, and then you connect with sensation in the body, and then the mind is out of there. It's a fascinating... And then we start to see that the body is basically a zone of preferences. What what you call the body is what you allow yourself to feel that you call the body, not actually how the body is. I say in the meditation, don't move. Sit still. But then you get an itch. And you have to move. But you don't. And then you learn something that you can't learn if you're not sitting still. Which is impermanence. That what arises passes away. And that you don't have to do anything with every little thing that arises. And then we become aware quickly of our reactivity. You know, those of you who are teaching yoga and teaching meditation, um, this is the most profound phase, is the first phase of sitting. When someone sits down and they can't do it. They sit down and they see how busy their mind is. That's the best phase. You know, just to be humbled by that. And for some of us, that's the phase we're in every time we sit down. Mm-hmm. A kind of being humbled by the fact that we don't really know how to work with our minds. And this is so important to actually acknowledge that we don't really know how to work with our minds. And that's why this week, you know, every intensive that we do here is a little bit different. And this week I've decided not to pay so much focus 
on the technique of asana. Uh, that's sort of been uh, not the primary focus this week, um, because it always is the primary focus, <laughs> you know. And just kind of start to look at some other components of the eight limbs. And I can see already from how you are all articulating your experience, especially yesterday, that you're seeing the connection. You know? And how to actually let the body be the beginning of our investigation, because we can't see the world independent of the body. You experience the world through the mind-body process. Our life is psychosomatic. You can't split them up. And maybe more somatic than psycho, <laughs> depending on your day and whether the coffee machine is working. <laughs> we do not receive wisdom. You cannot know the body from the outside, and I can't do it for you. After a journey through the wilderness, we must discover it for ourselves after a journey through the wilderness which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us. For our wisdom, our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. So when we're still, when we're paying attention, we're connected. There's intimacy. We're not witnesses. We're connected, deeply connected. So bearing witness doesn't mean you're a witness. It means you're there. right? It means you're engaged, not dissociated. And when we're bearing witness, we can really pay attention to what's actually happening free of our habits of ego desire and aversion, and so on, craving, clinging, um, other creative movements of the mind. So that's why the theme this week of intimacy, or what we've been calling togetherness, and renunciation go hand in hand, right? And what are they connected by? Attention. What connects them? Attention. When there's attention, there's renunciation. And what is it that we're renouncing? Our viewpoint. And then this leads eventually to a deeper viewpoint, which is wisdom, or in Sanskrit what's called pragna. Pragna, wisdom. Wisdom is taking your insight and testing it out over and over again in the world so that your insight is constantly being worked and you're not just resting in one glorious insight you've had. It's like you you drop some acid and then you have a valid experience of interconnectedness, if it goes well. (laughs) And that's genuine insight, you know. But that's not wisdom. And sometimes we have like an insight and then we rest in that for 20 years. You know, you just rest in that insight. You have interconnectedness. Um, But you can't integrate it. And so the eight limbs are suggesting this is how you integrate it. You apply it ethically, internally and externally, until you see that there's no internal, no external. You take care of the body you take care of the mind, and you take care of others. So that compassion begins on your sticky mat, moves through the body, moves through the mind, and out into the world. And then the sticky mat becomes the world. You can't roll it up. You can't roll your sticky mat up. You think you're rolling it up. When you roll that up, you're just rolling something into the world. I'm just going to put my mat away. (laughs) That's the whole world. You can't put it away. It's like saying, I am my body, or I am in my body. (laughs) 
What about thinking it op- in the opposite way? That the body is in me. The world is in me. Everything is in me. Just to mess up the way that we conceive of everything as being either inside me or outside me. And this is an artificial creation, a fragmentation in the mind that we make up. Like I was saying on the first day, if you say that this on this rectangle, this is my practice, and when I step off it, that's not my practice, then that's how it's going to be for you. <laughs> but when you see that you can't roll up your mat, you can't roll it up. Then you get hit over the head with the whole world. It's like, how can I roll anything? <laughs> Try rolling up your yoga mat. <laughs> so that these questions we have about our practice or about ourselves or other people, or this big question that we move through the world with, what is the meaning of life? It's an attempt to articulate what's beyond articulation. And so the best thing to do with the question is put it down so that our response to the question, what is the meaning of life, is just simple, which is this, 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 what's happening right now. What is this? What is this? You're in a yoga pose. What is this? What is this? Moment after moment, what is this? What is this? Such deep, penetrating investigation and acceptance. Without an answer. You don't need to have an answer. And hopefully our questions start to outnumber our answers. But we start to clarify what our questions are. And I think we all have different questions. Like, I think if you're a philosophical person, your question might be, you know, what is the meaning of this? You know? And I think if you're a sort of more utilitarian person, your question might be, you know, what should I do? You know? Or, you know, how can I serve? <laughs> so that these mind states that we get in, when the question needs an answer, can lead to separation. Because there isn't a renunciation of that need to have it answered. And when you can renounce that, when the separation starts to dissolve, then so does greed, envy, competitiveness, hatred. But it's not enough to say that yoga practice is neutralizing greed, hatred, and envy, and so on, jealousy, competitiveness. It's not enough to neutralize that. Yoga is a complete transformation of those energies into a state of being where those energies are replaced with care for other people, other sentient and insentient life with or without sense organs. Can you transform greed by working with generosity? Like, if you are dominated most of the time by states of greed, can you practice giving more? Like really giving it away. Giving it away. Not holding on. If you are dominated by states of envy, can you practice appreciation? Really appreciating others. If your world is dominated by enemies, can you see how it's not just... It's not just that your state of mind gets projected out into the world. It's that your state of mind literally transfigures the world. And then you think that is the world. So that's why it's not enough just to neutralize our thoughts that are negative. 
It's that we have to transform them by taking opposite actions. So it's not just enough to say, just bear witness. Bear witness to what's happening. You have to also take loving action. It's not enough to say samadhi is the eighth limb of yoga. You have to say that after samadhi comes the first limb of yoga, ethics. Because it's not enough to only practice um, moment-to-moment awareness. Because you might start to think, that moment-to-moment awareness um, doesn't require action. You have to see the link between acceptance and action. As we've talked about, who has the quote from the... Can I, can I use your... Uh, I'll read this again, unless it's memorized for you. <laughs> Soil that is dirty grows the countless things. Soil that is dirty grows the countless things. Water that is clear has no fish. Thus, as a mature person, you properly include and retain a measure of grime. You can't just go along enjoying your own private purity and restraint. So the presence of too much self-concern sets up the conditions for intimacy to slip away. Too much me and togetherness slips away. Too much self-concern creates the conditions for togetherness to just slip away. And according to yoga, that's an insufficient way of being. Because there's no intimacy, which is what we crave. Even in our uh, most materialistic moments, that's what we crave. Do you think that uh, things like greed and envy and jealousy are these kinds of really intense, um, pointed mm-hmm. ways we have of being are a kind of twist on that drive toward intimacy or union? Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? You could, if you were to take it a little bit further, you would say that those states of mind that you just described are postures, existential postures that are designed to avoid togetherness. At some level, those postures, if we can think of greed and competitiveness Mm -hmm. as like psychological postures, um, they're strategies to avoid being touched. And human beings uh, need to be touched by others. Strategies to be to avoid being touched by the vulnerability and openness, by being touched. Vulnerability and openness by. are like the factors. Right. The strategies to avoid being touched by what? You tell me. Well, that's why I'm saying the being touched by what. Being touched by one's pain or feelings of lack or want mm-hmm. or need. Mm-hmm. Or being touched by joy. It's like we look for joy in the strangest places. <laughs> I mean, how many of you really, you know, start to feel joy and shut it down? Out of habit? I, I do this sometimes. Yeah. Like you start feeling happy, and then you say to yourself, I'm so happy. 
<laughs> and then it starts to crumble a little bit. Because you just came in and you just told yourself how you're happy. I don't, I can't, I can't, I don't um, agree hmm. that this is the purpose of these things. So what? To avoid joy. I didn't make that Sorry. I think I know where you're coming from because um, I really see things like greed almost as a strategy to forestall disappointment. That mm-hmm. it's almost like at some point you asked for something and you were in touch with something that you wanted and somehow it just didn't turn out the way you wanted it. Like you didn't get it. Yeah, you didn't get it. It wasn't in the form that you wanted it. You couldn't recognize it. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And in order to not experience that deprivation again. That's what I mean. This is what I mean. You kind of really set up a very highly controlled environment in which you can achieve things. Yeah. But at the seat of it actually is what Michael was saying. You want joy or you want love. No, but he said it's to avoid joy. It can be. Like, it's too easy to just think of aversion as aversion to pain mm-hmm. or aversion to negative states of mind. Some of us are organized to have some aversion unconsciously mm-hmm. towards being happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look at psychoanalytic theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, Freud said the best we can do was common human unhappiness. <laughs> common human unhappiness. I mean, we never speak in psychological theory about happiness, about joy. One of my favorite writers in psychoanalysis is Adam Phillips. And someone in a recent uh, review of his work called him a philosopher of happiness. <laughs> And then they said, how rare. (laughs) A philosopher of happiness. Too often our meditation on impermanence sets up a mood of nihilism. A mood of depression. Not happiness. So what do you think that is then? Do you think that there's a strategy to avoid joy? So what function would that have? To avoid joy? Mm -hmm. What would the function be? Many years, many, many years ago, even in her 20s, but she addressed this, and she was a very bright person that wasn't totally articulate, but Mm -hmm. we do this because we avoid happiness to pay for the sin of being alive. Hmm. That was her interpretation. Mm -hmm. We avoid feeling good or being happy to help pay for the sin of being alive. That was Mm -hmm. her language. Mm-hmm. in sort of that traditional Western Christian all the way we're bad, everything we do is bad we're bad, we put them all bad so mm-hmm. to be happy, how could we be happy when we're yeah. so inherently bad yeah. that makes sense and the perspective in yoga is that we're not inherently bad we're not inherently good mm-hmm. we're inherently interconnected mm-hmm. and that's why like for uh, Nietzsche and for Kierkegaard, um, I was just in Copenhagen, and my favorite place in Copenhagen is called the Black Diamond. Did have you been there? Yeah. It's this amazing library, and actually, there's this whole area which was sort of Kierkegaard's area, um, uh, and they have an amazing espresso <laughs> bar where you could like get a book and sit and have a cappuccino and look out at the harbor. It's beautiful. And um, for for Nietzsche and for for Kierkegaard, you know, the and for Freud, you know, our basic repression is the fear of death. I mean, that's the thing that we repress the most. And from the perspective of yoga and from the perspective of Buddhism as well, our basic repression is not the fear of death. Our basic repression is that we didn't exist to begin with. That the self wasn't actually there to begin with. That what's there to begin with is everything. And so the theory of repression, to use kind of Freudian 
language is that when something is repressed, it comes back again as a, in symbolic form. And the symbolic form are most of our emotional repressions come back as, as symptoms. And so yoga would look at Western philosophy or these particular philosophies and say, what we repress most is that we don't actually exist. And so what comes back as symbolic form is dukkha, is lack. And all the manifestations of lack, consumerism, romantic love, capitalism, materialism, um, the desire for fame and notoriety. And you know, one of the places we see this is in war, right? I mean, isn't it amazing? Some of you I've been sending around this article called Why We Love War. Um, about how soldiers talk often about how when they go to war, it gives them meaning and purpose. Because when you create an object, you create a subject. But it's an illusory kind of meaning. Like, if I say, that's our enemy, then we can have nationalism. You see? So there's something momentarily satisfying about that. And that's one of the reasons why we love war, isn't it? Because we project our lack externally, so it comes back as a symptom or a symbol, them. And if we have them, we can have us. Right? And we have us, we can feel existentially secure, even though this is no kind of security. Because you have to keep it going. Yeah, that's why some people say, you know, peace is just the intermission between wars. Right. Then, Michael, then yeah. things like greed and being jealousy, which are also the subject-object mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. they could really have the same purpose, right? To try to fulfill one's lack in that way. Uh, oh yeah, those are symptoms of our yeah. dukkha. Yeah. Uh, Patabi Joyce calls them the six poisons of the heart. Right. He says, when you breathe into the heart, when you breathe into the heart, you find yenemies. <laughs> this is actually the introduction to my, my book, is this story about sitting with Patabi Joyce and him saying, I don't want to give it away because I want you to read the book. We were in Boulder, Colorado at the Marpa House on the second floor. Patabi Joyce was sitting and he was sitting in front of a Tibetan Tonga of Avalokiteshvara. Um, she's not here right now. She was here this weekend. And um, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And every time he talked about breathing or God or the self, he always touched his heart like this. So I said, Guruji, how come every time you talk about breathing or God, you always touch your heart? And he said, oh, students coming to yoga wanting to find God. Breathing into heart, not finding God, finding yenemies. <laughs> Many yenemies. And then he went on to describe how the enemies of the heart are these factors of greed, hatred, delusion, envy, sloth, anger. And those enemies are symptoms of a heart that's unsettled. Right? They're symptomatic of samsara. And in, in my book, the way I translate samsara, which is usually translated as conditioned existence, is meaninglessness. Where we're spinning in our habits, and over time, those habits of aversion and distraction create a sense of meaninglessness. Things don't have meaning anymore. Why? Because we're not being touched. Or touching. Seeing or being seen. goes both ways. Yeah. So, you know, it's important to remember you don't take refuge in Shakyamuni. You take refuge in Buddha. 
you don't take refuge in Patanjali. You take refuge in yoga, in intimacy. You're not taking refuge in an ideal of a character. You're taking refuge in the basic capacity to wake up. And we may have factors that help wake us up. But you start to see that there is no such thing as sangha. There's no such thing as community. That's everything. Mm -hmm. Like the word nature means everything. Everything. Nothing's left out. You can't leave anything out. You can't even say this is community. I mean, yes, you can. But from the other side, you can't. In fact, you can't say individual because an individual only exists interdependent. You can't say enemy. We talked about that yesterday. They're interdependent. Mm -hmm. I have a very irritating question. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing you were talking about. You were talking about assumptions, right? Uh -huh. The assumption in yoga is mm -hmm. the assumption in Western culture is just mm -hmm. an assumption. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of all these kind of belief systems mm -hmm. and practices is an assumption. Or it seems to me that there's an assumption there that one has to kind of buy into, right? Mm -hmm. And the empiricist in my mind is saying, mm -hmm. what do I do with this? Do I test these assumptions out to see which rings more true mm -hmm. in my empirical system? Mm -hmm and then go with that? Mm -hmm. Or is this an act of faith? Mm. Both. So, if you look at the methodology of Patanjali, you would say he always says a sentence, he recites, you know, there's a sentence, then he defines all the terms in the sentence, and then he gives you a practice. Likewise, the noble truths in Buddhism. The first noble truth is that life is characterized by a pervasive sense of lack that is everywhere. So you could say that's the first assumption of Dharma, that life is characterized by lack that is everywhere. So that's only appealing if you feel that there's a sense of lack, if you feel that there's suffering if you feel unsatisfied. The second proposition is um, that lack is caused by craving. So the way that that's structured is saying, here's the hypothesis, but this only makes sense if you test that out. So there's a very close relationship between the assumption and the method of verifying it. And of course, lack can be brought to an end, and here's the path. Here's, you know, here's the eightfold path, here's the eight-limbed path. Interesting that they're both. And, um, and you know, here is the method, right? Livelihood, right mindfulness, or ethics, pranayama. So there's a sense that you're not to take the assumption on faith. You're interested in the assumption because that's how you feel. But you can't just rest in now someone articulating how you feel. Here's the practice to bring it to an end. So that's an important piece because you're not asked to have blind faith. You're not asked to have blind faith. You're asked to have the kind of faith that shows up when you can really acknowledge that you're longing for something. You have faith, usually, after some longing. And you can't dismiss longing as the desire of the ego. There's a real longing for connection. And so that's how you put the assumptions to use. And that's how the process is constructed. So the assumptions are all articulated by hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And it's saying, like, here's a question, and here's how you can work with it. Well, I really struggle with this. Is, um, 
as kind of a point from which I honor other people's set belief systems mm-hmm. that could be very different from mine. Like, for example, mm-hmm. Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, how do I look at that from where I sit mm-hmm. and understand that that for them is just as not even real as truthful mm-hmm. as where I am is for me and mm-hmm. that kind of talks about a kind of relativism that makes me uncomfortable because I'm always looking for absolute answers anyway. ah, well I think you just touched yeah. on your own yeah. response <laughs> on the answer really is uh, also where everything has to congeal where you can't tolerate difference because mm-hmm. actually the feeling of intimacy comes from difference, mm-hmm. not from sameness. Sameness kills intimacy. If you say that we're all the same, which is how a lot of people talk about oneness, oh, we're all the mm-hmm. same, you know, you kill intimacy. Because that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is difference. Mm-hmm. Then we can dialogue. You wake up in the morning with your lover and you look over and say, oh my, what have I done? (laughs) And then you have to get to know them all day. And then the next morning you wake up and go, who is this in my bed? (laughs) Or whose bed am I in? Why do we own a bed together? (laughs) Or you go into your job. And you see your co-workers and say, who are these people? I'm going to get to know them today. Especially the ones you've been working with for 20, 30 years. Who is this person? I'm going to get to know them today. How can I serve them? And actually one of the best ways of serving people is to not know who they are. (laughs) I mean, isn't that one of the best ways of serving people? not knowing who they are. I have a friend right now who's going through, you know, this real crisis of um, self-doubt. And so we talk for hours about her self-doubt. And um, after a couple weeks of this, on the phone, you know, I start to get impatient. You know, it's like, do something, you know. But I find that my impatience is actually very connected to me trying to help her. And then when I find I just listen in an engaged way, uh, she feels so much better. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we've been going over and over these three factors. Not knowing... Bearing witness, taking loving action. Let me read what Patanjali says about asana. Because I think that's what we do together most of the time. The postures of meditation should embody steadiness and ease. The asanas should embody steadiness and ease. In other words, you sit with what is arising from moment to moment with steadiness and ease. I always think if you put steadiness and ease together, you get elegance or impeccable attention. With whatever is arising, sit with it. Asana means to sit. This occurs as all effort relaxes and coalescence arises, revealing, or you could say intimacy arises, revealing that the body and the infinite universe are indivisible. Have you ever had this in a, in a yoga pose? You're, you're practicing a pose, teachers yelling at you, internal rotation, external rotation, you go back and forth and back and forth, and suddenly the fact that that's trikonasana is irrelevant. You're so inside it that there's just what's happening. There's nobody there. And this occurs when effort relaxes and intimacy arises. 
then one is no longer disturbed by the dvanvas, the play of opposites. Then one's no longer disturbed by the play of opposites. Then you're not disturbed by my body, you know, that posture, the ideal of the posture. You're just in it. With effort relaxing, the flow of inhalation and exhalation can be brought to a standstill. This is called pranayama. As the movement patterns of each breath, inhalation and exhalation lull, are then observed as to their duration, number, and area of focus, the breath becomes spacious and subtle. Then the mind's potential for concentration is realized. Then the veil lifts from the mind's luminosity. When consciousness then interiorizes by uncoupling from external objects, the senses do likewise, and this is called pratyahara, where the senses reside utterly in the surface of realization. Is that clear? Clearer than chapter four. Then the senses reside utterly in the service of realization rather than caught in the habit of um, being hungry. Mary Taylor has a great title for her book, What Are You Hungry For? Mm-hmm. What are, it's about women eating and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Part cookbook. What are you hungry for? <laughs> what are you hungry for? So in the same way that the feet are connected to the elbows and the eyes are connected to the ears and the, there's no place in the body where you can find separation, the same is true with the body and the infinite universe. There's no separation. And yesterday we were doing a little bit of concentration together. And one of the things that's very easy to notice is that it's hard to find edges, especially if you close your eyes, right? It's hard to find edges. And then you see how the edges are just conceptual designations, and boy, they're useful. Because otherwise you'd go stand out in front of the road and say, oh, bring on the traffic. There's no separation. (laughs) So there's no separation, and there's difference. And that's why there's interconnectedness. Because there's difference, there's oneness. When there's sameness, there's no intimacy. When there's difference, then there's intimacy. And that's not a paradox. When I can allow you to be you, oh, isn't that hard? Because most of us, I mean, I know most of you, and I think most of us are a little bit odd. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the people we like to hang out with are a bit odd. Sometimes Michelle calls herself an oddball magnet. (laughs) But it's nice to be around odd people. Because they give you permission to be odd. But isn't it hard to accept people who are odd? Because then you actually have to allow eccentricity. And we like that as an idea. But it's hard to leave people alone. It's really hard to leave people alone. I mean, can you even leave your breath alone? (laughs) Your body alone? Land alone? Like, can land not be real estate? 
Can a resource not be a commodity? Can other people not be just uh, servants of your notions? So that's why I asked you yesterday when you were working in groups, um, not just how your experience in concentration was connected to some particular situation in your life. And I think you're all really honest and clear about that. But then what are you going to do about it now? You know, Not what is possible at the end of your yoga path. <laughs> I'm going to be so compassionate. <laughs> I'm going to bring the suffering in this relationship to an end. But what are, what are you going to let go of now? You know what? And to do that, what are you going to renounce now, today, this week? What are you going to let go of in that relationship? And we talked about the three spheres of mind, speech, our body, speech, and mind. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Delight. I have one more thing to add. When the symptoms of suffering arise, and they penetrate your state of mind, which I always like to think is like weather patterns, mm-hmm. you know, um, moods. How many of you are like walking to the store and you just find yourself in a mood? You know? mm-hmm. Find yourself in a mood. Come on in. How many of you have that experience? Mm-hmm. So here's what Patanjali says about that. Consciousness, consciousness settles. See, the chitta vrittis, they settle. As one radiates, I love that word, as one radiates friendliness, compassion, delight, and equanimity towards all things whether pleasant or painful, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that again. Mm-hmm. Consciousness settles. This is the end of the first chapter. Consciousness settles as one radiates friendliness, compassion, delight, and equanimity towards all things, whether they're pleasant or painful good or bad. Some people often ask, if Patanjali is known for articulating eight limbs of practice, why does he do it halfway through the second chapter? Why does he do it halfway through the second (coughs) chapter? Why does he talk about ethics halfway through the text? Well, because first he does two things. Number one is he talks about karma, that your actions have a consequence. And he keeps whipping that at you. And second, you have to be able to apply the antidote to the symptoms of dukkha. And here are the five antidotes. Of course, those of you with the Buddhist background know that these are the Brahma-viharas, the abodes of Brahma, uh, the divine abodes um, I like to translate this as the five powers of the mind. And um, so we have a direct reference to Mahayana Buddhism here. Maybe even an extraction. Consciousness settles 
as one radiates Maitri, friendliness, Karuna, compassion, Mudita, delight, Upekshanam, equanimity, toward all things, whether pleasant, punya, or unpleasant, apunya, good or bad. Whether they're sukha or dukkha. In Sanskrit, it's sukha, dukkha, punya, punya. <laughs> sukha, dukkha. Sweet or suffering. Punya, pleasant. Apunya, unpleasant. Sukha, dukkha. <laughs> punya, punya. I love that. <laughs> Shakti, shakti, <laughs> and the paradox here is that those are tvanvas. Those are pairs of opposites. And so with steadiness and ease, then we start to see that those are no longer opposites. That the body and the individual and the infinite universe, the individual universe, <laughs> the body and the infinite universe are indistinguishable. So to sum up, togetherness, renunciation. Without renunciation, there's no togetherness. Without renunciation, there can't be any kind of intimacy. And the path is impeccable attention. But you can only have impeccable attention if you can tolerate difference. Because if you can't allow difference, then there's no oneness. Because oneness is made of difference. And those are not opposites. That's not a paradox. Mm.